Uh, my good morning to Josh's. Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to see you all this morning. And it's such a joy to be together in God's house, uh, receiving his good word of his gospel together and praising him together. Let's turn to God's holy word. Our Old Testament reading is Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 11. Just as a, as a note, I'll be reading the English Standard Version this morning. Um, just for these particular passages, I thought the translation was a, a bit clearer, a bit better. So I chose the English Standard for this morning's scripture readings, both for Old and, and New Testament. So Hosea 6, 1 through 11. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down. And he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they they dealt faithlessly with me, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. And I restore the fortunes of my people. And our New Testament text is Matthew 23, verses 13 through 39. Matthew 23, 13 through 39. This is the word of the Lord. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, 
the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding, the blood of the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. O our great God, we humble ourselves before you. We we bow down before you and submit to your word. We pray that you yourself would speak to us with your sovereign word and your life-giving word that you would convict us and encourage us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? Father, speak now uh, through, through the word of our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of your Spirit, even to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times when Jesus' words are absolutely the sweetest and tenderest words. When the things that Jesus says are so full of compassion and mercy, 
We see his life and ministry. We've seen it all through Matthew's gospel on page after page after page. Just the, 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 the depth of his affection for his people and his compassion for his people. Um, his compassion on sinners. He, he, he says to the paralytic who's brought to, him, brought, brought to him before the paralytic even asks for anything, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, he, he says to uh, uh, the, the, the woman who was unclean because of the discharge of, of blood for 12 years, no one else would, would go near her, would, would touch her, but, but, but he allowed her to touch his garment, and, and, and he healed her and made her well. Um, uh, we, we see, uh, we see the, the demon-possessed men that no one else will go near, raving in the tubes, raging, mad, wild, untamable. Jesus goes to them. And he has compassion on them. And he heals them, casts out the demons, restores them to their right minds. And so we, we, see, we see this all through the Gospels. And we, we see his, his gentleness and his meekness. Those words, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, we love them so much, where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Oh, Jesus, speak more like that. That's what we love to hear, isn't it? But there are other times when his words are brutal. I mean, you heard him there in Matthew 23, the woes, one after the other, sounding out in judgment on the unbelief and the sin and their rebellion of people who, who won't Surrender to them. Won't confess their sin and is stubborn in their pride. I heard one pastor recently say that after you hear the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon, Matthew 5 and following, after you hear that sermon, you've got to pick yourself up off the ground um, because it hammers you with holiness and the need for holiness. And it bruises your heart. It knocks you down if you've heard it properly because of the demand that Jesus makes there for the for the holiness that, that God requires. And this sermon as well, that Jesus' words here in Matthew 23, 13 to 39, are, are also like that, perhaps more so. Um, they, are, they are explosive words, destructive words. These are like charges of dynamite that he sets off one after the other um, underneath the pride and the hypocrisy of, 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 the, of the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus is no... He's, he's, he's moving now from warnings to judgment. Uh, this is no longer so much Jesus saying, uh, if you don't repent, Pharisees, you'll, you'll be condemned. This is, this is more moving into the territory of he's reading out the verdict now. He's been ministering for three years now among them, and their hearts are just getting harder and harder and harder. And now the verdict is being read out. Here's the judgment of God. Woe to you. Woe to you. Seven times over. But at the same time, his words are also a warning, aren't they? Uh, not, he's not only speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. As, as he's speaking here in the temple, Tuesday of Passion Week, he's, he's speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to all the people who have gathered around to hear him. And he's also speaking to his disciples. And, and so the words that he's saying, these woes on the scribes and Pharisees, are meant to wake up the hearts of his disciples, too, and, and those who are uh, not necessarily in the same category yet as the scribes and Pharisees with their rebellion against Christ, uh, but not necessarily either uh, fully repentant 
uh, and so he is speaking a word of warning here and calling, calling people, all people, to be careful, to hear what he's saying, and to repent. Brothers and sisters, our Confession of Faith, chapter 14, paragraph 1, tells us that saving faith trembles at the threatenings of God's word. Uh, the word of God, Isaiah 66, 2, says the one to whom God looks is the one who trembles at his word. Um, and this is a word that we should tremble at this morning. Tremble at the warning that Christ gives us. But at the same time, this is also a precious word because Christ is calling us to himself once again. We see it especially come through at the end of the passage. So we need to tremble as we hear his word. We also need to trust. Trust that he has abundant mercy for sinners and that all who come to him he will never cast out. We're going to work through these uh, seven charges now together. Jesus, uh, he gives these seven charges. The first six go together in pairs, and then the, the, the seventh brings the conclusion. Uh, if, you're, if you're not following along in the English Standard Version, if you've got, say, a New King James, you might notice an, an eighth charge stuck in there. Verse 14 is, is in there. Uh, this is a verse that shows up in some later Greek manuscripts, but it's not in the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts. Um, it's a verse that actually comes from Mark 12. It also shows up in Luke 20. Um, and it's kind of, it, it seemed to get slipped in here at one point in, uh, in Matthew 23, but the oldest manuscripts uh, don't have it. So we're just going to look at the seven charges here uh, that, as the ESV has it. So the first two woes, the first, the first pair of, of woes that Jesus gives. He condemns those who are enemies of his kingdom. Um, We'll start with the first, the first woe. The, the first thing he says, verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, where you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus is charging them with, with two things, two sins here. Uh, first, he's saying that they themselves are refusing to enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule and reign, coming in, in climactic glory now to Israel and, and, and God himself coming in Christ to rule over his people and establish, inaugurate his, his kingdom, uh, bring life and peace and blessing and righteousness. And the scribes and Pharisees are refusing it. They are refusing the kingdom. They're refusing Christ, the king. Uh, they, they hate who he is. They hate the compassion that he has for sinners. They hate his meekness and gentleness and, and humbleness. They, they hate his holiness, which is so much deeper than their holiness. Even as Jesus speaks, they're plotting to murder him. So Jesus is calling them out for this, that they're enemies of his kingdom. They won't go into the kingdom. Second thing, though, they've not only rejected Jesus, but they're actively trying to keep others from going to Jesus. They don't want to go into his kingdom don't want to repent and enter, but they're also trying to keep everyone that they can from entering into his kingdom as well. We see an example of this. Uh, John 9, 22 um, tells us that the Jewish religious authorities had, uh, had decided that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated from, from the synagogue for, for professing faith in Jesus Christ. They're using their influence, which is considerable in, in, in Israel this time. They're using all their influence to keep as many people from following Christ as they possibly can. 
Why is that so bad? For one thing, it's high treason. Jesus is their king. He has every right to demand the full allegiance of every single Jew. He comes as David's son. He comes as God himself in the flesh. God with us. Israel's covenant Lord himself has come. And he's calling for obedience. And he's calling for faithfulness. And he's calling his people to come to him and follow him and submit to him. And these scribes and Pharisees are doing everything they can to keep the people from following after the rightful king. High treason. They're committing. It's also cruel. Immeasurably cruel. They're slamming the door of the kingdom in men's faces. It'd be like going to the ER and parking your car right in front of the door and not letting anyone in. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. The only Savior of sinners. And they're doing everything they can to keep sinners from going to Him. They're trying, Jesus brings eternal life. They're trying to keep people from coming to Christ and receiving that eternal life that He gives. So you see why Jesus speaks with the forcefulness, the intensity that he, that he does here. That they're doing everything in their power to stop Jesus from being worshipped, adored, and obeyed. And they're doing everything in their power to stop his people from being saved from their sins. They're trying to keep Christ from receiving what is owed to him. And they're trying to keep men from getting what they need from him. This is one part of, of their resistance to the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus goes after in the first woe. But then the second woe shows us the active side of this as well. They're not just, um, they're not just trying to keep people from entering the kingdom. They're actually going around and advancing their own kingdom. The, the, Jesus is trying to bring the kingdom of heaven. They are actively trying to bring a kingdom of hell. Look what Jesus says next, the second woe here. He says, uh, woe to you, verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The Pharisees and the scribes are not lazy. They're passionate in advancing the cause that they love, and the cause that they love is their own false gospel. The gospel of their own legalism, their own brand of Judaism, which is perverted from what the Scriptures teach. And they go around trying to convince other Jews in Palestine to become Pharisees like them. They go around outside Palestine trying to convince God-fearing Gentiles. Gentiles who, who, who believe in the God of the Jews but aren't fully Judaized yet, they go around trying to make them 100% Pharisee as well, just like themselves. They're tireless in pursuing this. And, and Jesus points out that when they go and make a convert, he's usually not less passionate than they are. He's usually more so, twice as much as they are. A self-righteous, proud, legalistic hypocrite. So Jesus calls them child. Uh, he says, he says they're twice, twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Um, one, one writer says that what he means by child of hell is, is this, a person belonging to, worthy of, and bound for hell. Jesus is saying that this mission of theirs is, is demonic. 
It is of hell and it is destined for hell. It is entirely opposed to his kingdom. He says in John 8, 44, to these same scribes and Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil. It's a shocking thing for him to say. These are the religious elite. Seminary professors, pastors would be the equivalent today. And he says to them, you are doing everything you can to stop the kingdom of heaven. And you are advancing the kingdom of hell. Active missionaries for their own cause over against the cause of Christ. What are we supposed to learn, brothers and sisters, from these warnings and these first two woes? We're not Pharisees. No, none of you has come to me and said, Pastor, uh, I'm a Pharisee. Uh, I really like what they say. Never heard that. Um, we don't have Pharisees going around and trying to persuade us of these things. Um, we don't deny that Jesus is the Christ. We don't try to keep people from the kingdom of heaven, do we? We, we, we pray for people that come to Christ. And, and uh, we, we pray for, 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 for evangelistic opportunities. And when we get them, we do try to speak something of the gospel and call people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the warning for us? Is there a warning for us? How can we be guilty of slamming the door of the kingdom of heaven in, in people's faces? Well, we need to pay close attention to ourselves, brothers and sisters. It's easy to be self-deceived. We can, we can think we're advancing the cause of Christ uh, and not be. Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Um, it's a church that has a good reputation. Looks like a healthy church. But Jesus says, no, I know your heart and, and you're dead. Um, no, no real spiritual life there. Um, and so we need to keep a close watch on ourselves, that, that we're not self-deceived. Um, we need to make sure we, we, we do preach the gospel faithfully. To make, keep, keep a watch on that. It's so easy to start adjusting the gospel a little bit to our own personality, preferences, our own agenda. And then it's, before long, been adulterated and no longer the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We also need to keep a, a close watch in our lives because it's one thing to preach the gospel faithfully. We also need to walk in it faithfully. There should not be a jarring dissonance between what I say I believe and how I, how I live. And, and if there is, my words might not be an obstacle to someone coming to Christ, but my life might be. In, in all our relationships, this can happen. Um, we, might, we might think of, uh, especially relationships in the home. As I, as, I, as I profess the faith before my children, do I also walk faithfully in that? So that I'm not putting obstacles between them and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing anything but encouraging them on towards Christ. Does your life your habits, your lifestyle, your choices, as well as your profession of faith, does it call people to Christ or put an obstacle in the way of them coming to Christ? That's what Christ is warning us against. That's the first pair of woes. The second pair here, um, woes three and four, Jesus condemns 
the scribes and Pharisees for their blindness to God and, and his law. He calls them blind guides. You'll notice uh, he uses this term. He calls them blind throughout. But at the beginning of the third woe in verse 16, he calls them blind guides. And then at the end of the fourth woe in verse 24, again, blind, blind guides. Uh, and he uses that language throughout. So this is all about blindness. Blindness to God, blindness to his law, blindness to what holiness really is. Um, the last thing a guide should be is blind. Imagine getting into a, a taxi and, and the driver says, oh, by the way, I can't see. You're going to get right out. You, I'm sure you've heard stories about dysfunctional GPS systems. Someone follows it perhaps too much, uh, too much confidence in that GPS system and they go down a road they would not have gone down or they even drive into a lake. You've probably seen these crazy stories. Um, you don't want a blind guide or a broken, dysfunctional GPS system. But that's exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing with the whole nation of Israel. So in the third woe, Jesus says, you're blind to God's law. About oaths, he highlights this here. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees had, had put this convoluted, complicated structure on top of God's law. They, they, they built it out further and further and further until it was this big, bloated, unreasonable thing. Um, uh, especially around, around oaths and, and promises. God's law says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Keep your promises. Good. Good commandment there. God's law makes that, makes that commandment clear. But the scribes and Pharisees said, well, let's get technical about this. Let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. And they said, if you swear an oath by the temple, you don't have to keep that promise. If you swear by the gold that's in the temple, now that's when you have to keep the promise. Or they did this with, uh, with the altar, too. If you swear an oath by the altar that's in the temple, don't worry about it. You don't have to keep that oath. You don't have to do what you said you would do. But if you took an oath on the sacrifice on top of the altar, well, then you have to keep what you said you would do. Jesus points out that there, this makes no sense. It's, it's completely nonsensical. Um, why would you say an oath taken on gold or a sacrificial animal wasn't binding, but then you would say that uh, uh, an oath taken on the, the temple or the altar was not binding? It's the temple that makes the gold sacred that's in the temple. It's the altar that makes the animal sacred that's, that's being offered on it. Not only that, Jesus says, but the loopholes, the fine print they're adding to God's law, it just misses the point. What's the point of an oath in the first place, of a promise? Well, it's to commit yourself with intention and, and, and care and, and 100% commitment to do what you said you'd do before God. Uh, but they're completely, they're completely missing that this is the point. Um, Jesus is, is calling them to their, that, that they need to be careful of their speech because they are speaking before God. He, he, he highlights this as he, as he draws to the end of the third oath. He says that if you swear by the temple, you're swearing by everything in the temple and everything the temple resent, represents, which is God himself with his people. Um, if you swear by heaven, you're swearing on the throne of heaven. You're swearing on the one who sits on the throne of heaven. In other words... He's saying every promise you make is a promise that you make before God and that you commit yourself before God to keep every promise that you make. A promise that you commit to on pain of judgment from God himself if you break it. 
That, that, that's the point. Jesus is saying here, it's very similar to what he said in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 37, where he said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. When you say yes, realize that you say yes before God. And when you say no, realize that you are saying no before God. What Jesus is calling us to, calling them to, is to be aware that they are always under the authority of God. Always living before the face of God. And that He holds us to account for every word that we speak. But the Pharisees, no concept of the fear of the Lord. They are blind to God's holy presence with them. Turning God's law into a game they play for their own advantage instead of living for the fear of the Lord. Fourth woe, Jesus says something very similar. Um, He condemns them here for their blindness to the essence of God's law. He talks here about tithing, about about the tithes, the tenth of something they would give. The Pharisees are fastidious tithers. They go out to their gardens, and they find the mint plant, and they find the dill and the cumin and everything else, and and they they count out, okay, how how much of this herb do I have? Now I'm going to carefully take a tenth, Let me give it to the Lord. And they they were careful to do this, but Jesus is saying they've missed the big picture. They've missed the forest for the trees. They are obsessing over these little things, these fringe things, which which have a place, but but they're they're, they're completely missing the major thing, the substance of God's law. They They have no concept of what the meat of God's law is. They're just frittering with the details. Imagine if you went to a restaurant. And you ordered your favorite meal. And the, the waiter comes, and the only thing on the plate is the garnish. A couple of sprigs of parsley or whatever. And the, there's no meal there. You've got, the, you've got the little the cherry on top. You've got the garnish. But where's the substance? Jesus is saying this is what they've, they've done with, with God's law. They've left out the substance of it. They've kept the fringe of it. But no, no, no substance. Jesus puts it like this, verse 24, a wonderful picture. He says, you strain out the gnat and you swallow the camel. We might say, you strain out the black fly, you swallow the moose. Right? You, you, you strain out the small thing. The, the, the little, if you have a gnat lands in your drink, you're going to get it out. Um, but but you're swallowing the camel. You are uh, you are you are uh, you are you are ignoring the substance and the meat and the weight uh, of, of God's law. Jesus is calling them here. He says to, to, to justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says you you you've not kept the heart of God's law. He's just talked about this, right? We saw this a couple of weeks ago. He says, commandment number one. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, strength. That is what the whole law depends on and hangs from. And the second that is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. They've missed those things completely. Brothers and sisters, again, we need to ask them. This is his warning to them. What's the warning for us? He's challenging us here to take a careful look at ourselves. Are you blind to the essence of God's law and what God, how God wants you to live? Maybe you pay careful attention to the little things. You strain out the black flies. 
or you, 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 you don't mind the outward externals, the details, um, giving the offering week by week, or um, uh, being, being careful to check off your Bible reading every day, important things. But, but what about the meat of giving your whole heart and your whole life to God and then love and service to others? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. God wants our hearts, brothers and sisters, and He wants our whole lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him. It's, it's this concern for the heart, and it's Jesus' keen awareness, His insight, that the scribes and Pharisees are hypocrites who have not given God their hearts at all, which then leads Jesus into the next pair, the third pair of woes, woes 5 and, and 6. And these two are very similar. They're, they're pretty much identical in what they're doing, both doing the same thing, which is a condemnation of hypocrisy. Um, woe number five, then. Jesus says that the Pharisees are not only blind to God and his law, that's what we just saw in the second pair of woes, but now he says they're also blind to themselves. He says that they clean the outside of the dish, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. They are like, like dishes, that have been washed on the outside, but the inside is full of caked-on layers of old dried food. It's just disgusting on the inside. You'd never touch it. But on the outside, it looks good. It looks clean. looks looks pristine. Um, the scribes and Pharisees are like this. Um, on the outside, look like a you know exhibit A of what a follower of God should be to most people. They looked righteous. They looked good. They looked right with God. Jesus says, look at your heart. Greed and self-indulgence. Desire for money. Desire for possessions. Desire for material things. Desire for honor. Desire for position. Desire for respect. All these greeds inside of them that are, that are just full of idolatry, uh, worshiping, worshiping themselves. And Jesus says they're self-indulgent. On the outside, the Pharisees looked like the epitome of self-control, saying no to desires. But Jesus says, inside, it's all about indulging your own heart and what your own heart wants. Their desires on the inside are completely unchecked. They indulge in everything that they think will raise their status. They might say no to... They might fast every twice a week, but inside... They're doing it because they want a name for themselves. They're worshiping themselves. God is not at the center of their religion. They're at the center of their, their religion and their lives. The sixth woe is very similar. Um, Jesus just takes a different metaphor here. Uh, he says they're like whitewashed tombs. At, at Passover time, um, the... Uh, Thousands of Jews would be making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And uh, in those times, you didn't have necessarily the, the, the tombs all in one spot. Uh, tombs would, could be kind of any, anywhere, anyone's backyard or along the road at any point uh, where someone had happened to be buried. And so um, the tombs would be whitewashed uh, because if you came into contact with a tomb, you'd be made unclean. And then you couldn't participate in the Passover celebration because you'd be unclean, uh, even if you accidentally made contact with a tomb. So they would whitewash the tombs, paint them white so they'd stand out, be bright, and you'd notice them, uh, and, and you, wouldn't, you wouldn't accidentally become unclean on your way up to, to the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Uh, as a side effect of this, the tombs would look good for a, for a while. Oh, that looks nice painted white like that. It's fresh, 
clean, bright, new. But inside, it's the same old tomb. Dead men's bones. Uncleanness. And Jesus is saying, Pharisees, inside, you know, outside, whitewashed, look good. Inside, no spiritual life. Dead. No, no love for the Lord. No real faith. Spiritually dead. And unclean. The Pharisees took so many pains to make sure they were ceremonially clean on the outside before God. Jesus says it doesn't matter because inside your heart is filthy with sin that you've never dealt with before the Lord. Nothing holy about them. He actually says uh, in verse 28 that they are lawless. It's a stunning charge to level against the scribes and Pharisees who claim to be experts in the law, who were so focused on the law. He says, you're lawless. You are anti-God's law. You are dead set against God's law. Your heart is, is, is rebellion, in, in constant rebellion and defiance of God's commandments. Your law-keeping is only cosmetic. And inside, lawless. So, brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves, how deep is our righteousness? How deep is our faith? Um, is, is, is our life, our, our religion, just an exterior, just cosmetic? When inside, no real love, no real faith, no real obedience. Notice Jesus has done this over and over again. He just keeps going after our hearts. I mentioned this last week. John Newton says, if you haven't given God your heart, what have you given him? And that is, that is what Christ is saying. If you haven't given God your heart, what have you given him? This is what he calls for. And if you haven't given him your heart, then just a whitewashed tomb full of uncleanness and lawlessness. So those are the first six woes. Jesus lays them out. He brings this condemnation against the Pharisees and the scribes. The first pair condemns them for their enmity against his kingdom. The second for being blind to the essence of God's law. The third, blind to their own hypocrisy. And then we come to the seventh. The seventh woe. This is in verses 29 through 36. Uh, this, one, this one is the culmination of the rest. We start to come full circle here as Jesus condemns the scribes and Pharisees uh, for how they've rejected God's messengers, and especially Christ himself. Um, he points out here that they have made a point to build monuments. And, and uh, great heroes of the faith, great, great heroes of the past, the Pharisees, the scribes, were, were careful to erect monuments to those who'd gone before them. Um, I, perhaps the prophet Isaiah, or, or, or to Moses, or, or David, or, or someone. Um, and they would decorate those monuments. And they would say things like, if we had been alive back then, we would not have done what our fathers did. We've probably, many of us, said something similar, right? Well, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have done that, 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 that dumb and sinful thing that they did back then. If I had been alive during uh, the Civil War, I would have been definitely against slavery. If I had been alive during the Reformation, oh, I, I would have been right there with Martin Luther. Oh, really? <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying to them. Uh, he's, he's saying to them that by saying that, you show how proud you are, and you show that you actually would have been on the wrong side. Um, 
because you're putting yourself as better than those who came before you, as, as morally superior and uh, more free of idolatry, less, less, less sinful than those who came before you. Um, Jesus says that when you say that, you condemn yourself. Uh, if, if the Pharisees had said instead something like this, I know the depth of my own sin and my idolatry and hypocrisy, and I know that if I'd been alive then, I probably would have done the same thing. Oh, God, have mercy on me. But if they had said that, what a good sign that would have been. But instead they say, oh, there's no way I would have done that. Proud. Full of pride in themselves and their own righteousness. No desire for God to save. And so Jesus says, for all their talk, they're just as guilty as their forefathers in the faith. Their spiritual fathers killed Abel, the first martyr in the Bible all the way back in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, Cain kills Abel. And Jesus says, you're spiritual descendants of Cain. Uh, they go on, uh, he goes on to the prophet Zechariah, who was killed in the temple, one of the last martyrs. And Jesus says, you're just like those who, who killed the prophet Zechariah in the temple itself. Verse 35, he says, um, and now, as Jesus already knows, what's their plan? It's Tuesday. What's going to happen on Friday? What are they planning to do? Get Jesus. Kill Jesus. Crucify Jesus. Get rid of Jesus. All the prophets who've come before who were persecuted, now Jesus himself, the great and final word of God, and their whole heart is bent on destroying him. And so now Jesus says... Go ahead. Finish what you've started. Fill up the measure of the sin of your fathers and face the judgment of God for it. Bracing words. That's how he ends, with this condemnation on them. They have rejected him. And now he, divine act of judgment, rejects them. And so the seven woes, perfect number, complete number, seven, judgment proclaimed against unbelieving Israel. But Jesus doesn't end there, does he? What comes next is, is so interesting, surprising in a way. It's not surprising, really, if we know Christ. But in a way, it's surprising. Imagine if you're in a court and the, the, the judge pronounces the sentence on those who are guilty, and then as soon as he's done pronouncing the sentence, he starts to weep for those he's just condemned. And that's what Christ is doing. This is exactly what we would expect of our Lord Jesus, though. Um, he, he is weeping over them because he came to his own. They're his people. And they've rejected him. They're, 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 his, they're the ones he came to save, and, and they're rejecting him. You can hear his anguish in verse 37. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing and you were not willing? Jesus is full of anguish because as God himself come to his people in this final climactic time of God himself coming in the flesh to save his people, his own people, his beloved bride and his child, they're rejecting him. And they won't have him. Jesus compares himself to a mother hen trying to protect her own children and care for her own children. And his anguish over Jerusalem is like a mother's anguish when her children reject her 
That's how deeply he feels this. He desires to save them, but they refuse him. This is a challenging text in some ways, brothers and sisters. As we see Christ in his words here, I would have gathered you, I would have saved you, but you were not willing. What do we make of this? Um, We do believe in the sovereign power of God to save all his elect people. Um, We believe that, that, that by his sovereign grace, he is irresistibly drawing to himself uh, all, all his elect. So how can Christ say, then, um, I would have gathered you, but you weren't willing? How do, we under, how do we understand this? It's not as though Christ is there wringing his hands, helpless, but he yet has this anguish for the, the unbelief of his people. Um, we, we, we see throughout Scripture that the sovereign God who calls his elect to himself and doesn't call all men in a saving way to himself yet desires all to be saved in some mysterious way. We see Ezekiel 33.11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God himself says that in Ezekiel 33. Or 1 Timothy 2.4, which tells us that God desires all men to be saved and find repentance. This is not in contradiction with God electing whom he will to salvation and passing over whom he will for condemnation. These two things are not contradictory. God is able to hold both of these things together without contradiction. He is able to desire for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of of, of Christ. And he is able to look especially on on his church, his visible church, those who outwardly profess faith but lack the inward faith and to say, won't you repent and put your faith in me? J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop, 19th century, staunch Calvinist as well, writes incisively on these words of Christ here. He says, there's something peculiarly deserving of notice in his expression. It throws light on a mysterious subject. It shows that Christ has feelings of pity and mercy for many who are not saved, and that the grand secret of man's ruin is his want of will. Weak as man is by nature, unable to think a good thought of himself, without power to turn himself to faith and call upon God, he still appears to have a mighty ability to ruin his own soul. The ruin of those who are lost is not because Christ was not willing to save them, nor yet because they wanted to be saved but could not, but because they would not come to Christ. Man's salvation, if saved, is holy of God. Man's ruin, if lost, is holy of himself. Christ desires all to be saved. And if you do not come to Christ, it is your own choice. And you are setting yourself to your own ruin. The Pharisees' rejection of Christ, it's their own fault. And thus Jesus says to them final words before his crucifixion here. He says, your house is left to you desolate. As Jesus leaves the temple, he says, your house, the temple, God's leaving. It's empty. A shell like you. 
And then he says they won't see him again until he comes in final judgment. And they finally acknowledge him to be the Messiah. But then it may be too late. And thus we come to the end of Matthew 23, brothers and sisters. What do we do with a text like this? How do we respond to this text? If Christ's words here do not hit home for you, if you leave the passage, you leave off reading, hearing these things, and you say, well, I'm glad I'm all right. I'm glad I'm not like the Pharisees. I'm glad I'm not a hypocrite like they were. Uh, patting yourself on, your, on, on the back, then, brothers and sisters, you should be worried. If you hear a text like this and it just water off your back, be concerned. Saving faith trembles at the threatenings and the warnings. And so should we. So if, if that is where you are, then pray for conviction. Pray to come under the, the sense of, of, of your need for the, the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ for you and the forgiveness of your sins. And pray for a heart that is sensitive and tender and a conscience that is, that is, that is, that is sensitive to God and His Word. On the other hand, if you hear the text and, oh boy, the words hit home. Uh, warnings about being a hypocrite. And it, and it does hit your heart, and, and you see, I am a hypocrite. I, I am a whitewashed tomb so much of the time that I've, you've given so little of your, of your heart to God, and, uh, and there's so much uncleanness in you. Then be encouraged. That is the way we should respond to these words, with, with a sense of conviction. And then going to Christ Jesus, because he came to save hypocrites, didn't he? Everyone he's ever saved has been a hypocrite. Look at his final words here. Even as he pronounces these woes on the, on the scribes and Pharisees, he still has a desire to save sinners. Even the sinners who are plotting to murder him in a few days. In fact, on the cross, that desire is still there. What does he say? On the cross, Father, forgive them. To, about those who are crucifying him. That's his prayer. For the hypocrites who put him on the cross, Father, forgive them. And then Luke uh, records in the book of Acts after Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascends um, that, that, that Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. And Peter is preaching to a crowd that includes a lot of Pharisees, a lot of hypocrites. And he says, you crucified the Lord of glory. You crucified the Messiah. How do they respond then? Their hearts are crushed. What shall we do to be saved? believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do. And they're added to the number of the church. And then there's another, there's another one, right? The Pharisee of all Pharisees. The hypocrite of all hypocrites. Saul of Tarsus. The one who's actively going throughout the whole region, doing everything he can to slam the kingdom of heaven shut in men's faces, dragging men and women off to prison so they don't believe in Christ. And Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road. And he says, you are mine, Saul. And he humbles him. And, and Saul comes to say, right, Paul, he comes to say, I am the chief of sinners, and yet God have mercy on a hypocrite and a Pharisee like me, and so he can for you. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you are the one who sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to seek and to save the lost. We pray for... We pray for hearts sensitive to your word, humble under your word. We pray that you would cause us to tremble at your word and to trust at your word and to run to our Lord Jesus Christ and find all the righteousness and all the 
purity of heart and the wholehearted devotion that we stand so in need of, that all our sins would be washed away in Him and that we would hold fast to Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.